Graham Norton here. What a blast we had on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Let's see what's in store today. Deborah Meaden is our first guest of the day and joins me to talk about her brand new children's book, Why Money Matters. Lisa Jewell has a brand new psychological thriller for you to read called None of This is True. Show chef Martha returns to Birmingham's Silly Oak with Quentin and Sue. And of course, Maria McCurlin's got her post bag in tow and brings us two more of your letters for Graham's Guide. Morning, Maria. <laughs> <laughs> have you gone mad today? Have you yes, gone I Billy have. Bonkers on Sunday? I have. I think there's something in the coffee. Uh, <laughs> I've cracked. Uh, did you watch the ladies doing the tennis thing yesterday? Of course you did. I did. I had some friends over. We had some Prosecco. It was very emotional because, of course, Ange Jabeur, who was the favourite for Wimbledon's ladies' final, um, crashed out in two sets. I think there was the weight of expectation was too much. Oh, but I how lovely how short it was. How nice and short and lovely. Mm. <laughs> how do you know? Did you watch it or have you just no, researched no. a little? Crash crashed out in two sets suggests it was yeah. nice and short. And, yes, uh, you know, was. early early strawberries. Nice. Mm, great. Mm, thanks for that. And, uh, yes. yeah, Kate was home early. That. Yeah, Kate was home yes. time to bath the kids. And, oh, it was great. Lovely. <laughs> I and like today, the time to bath the kids. <laughs> and uh, today it's the oldie versus the youngie. Yes, it is. It's Alcaraz versus Djokovic, the you know cannot be beaten champion. Uh, he's trying to to um, emulate Roger Federer's record today. So will he's sixteen years older? He is sixteen years older than Alcaraz. It will be exciting. I hope it's a five setter because all those people that pay millions to be on centre court have been slightly shortchanged yesterday by a two setter, and then I mean I don't know something else afterwards. I didn't I um didn't turn on. But if you want to listen, <laughs> something instead else of, afterwards was yeah. it a tennis match? <laughs> no, it was. Um, Lisa O'Sullivan on Talk Sport will talk you through everything today oh you're so preamble. on brand you're so on brand well I done I know great and I'm... after the tennis my friend has a tiny little new puppy who's a month younger than Raffi who is just about five months now and it's a little Jack Russell puppy um, which is the size I have to say sorry a size of a hamster but a quite an aggressive hamster <laughs> and so the Ooh. two puppies gambled and raced around the garden and fought each other to the death almost and there's something so joyous about puppies who are new to everything. Occasionally, they both stop to bark at the wind, which is good, because that <laughs> wind can be perilous. Um, but just so sweet. So I think Raffi has made a little friend uh-huh. um, for life. And now also the owner of the Jack Russell puppy wants to breed Raffi with a Jack Russell to make a Jack Poo or several Jack Poos. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> Why, oh dear, isn't that a nice thing? Uh, I know we're setting them up quite young, but, um, yes. you know, for the future. Also, I feel there's, uh, are there enough puppies in the world? I mean, I... Yeah, just, I yeah. know. You're absolutely yeah. right. There are enough puppies in the world. Um, but it's that thing, as I asked the vet, you know, when do you have them done? You know, spayed oh, yes. for the ladies yeah. and neutered or whatever for the boys. And I said, is it better to let them have one go at it and then they have them done or not any at all? And I said, if it were you <laughs> to the vet, <laughs> what would you prefer? And he said, well, obviously, I'm a man. I'm going to say, ha- let them have one go at it. Oh, really? So What's I'd your say, view I'd, on this? I'd say no go. I'd say no go. No go. 
No. Oh, go. don't let them know what they're missing. You mean? No, no. But also, it's to do with well, I mean, the, your dogs are tiny, so it doesn't matter. But with big dogs, uh, if you if you wait too long, then there's so much testosterone in them that it won't. Re- yeah. You know, it, it kind of the damage is done. The, the, it, whatever aggression is going to be there is there already. So, well, it's not so yeah. much aggression. It's more, um, you know, wanting to hump everything, isn't it? Toys and and legs and chairs and so on. Yeah, but dogs but do I that anyway. Also, dogs do that anyway. Do. Yeah. My vet also said, you know, if you do them too soon, all those hormones that are sort of, you know, starting to display are important for their growth, for their bones and so on. I'm sure there'll be a vet listening who will tell me this is not true. But um, so don't do them too soon because it hampers that if you get rid of all the testosterone, etc. Yeah, I, I think for lady dogs. It, yeah, yeah. I, I was told of boys about nine months is about right. That that way they've fully, you know, they've, they've got all that stuff. Uh, but right. you're not you're not letting them get too wild before you do it. Right. Apparently, I like this dog segment on the radio in the morning. It's very <laughs> I pleasing. Like, I like. There aren't many shows that do a tennis and pet section in one. <laughs> You know. And you also, know. also Telly, Graham, I have a recommendation on the Netflix. It's a film, film called Georgetown, and it's got Vanessa Redgrave in. Uh, yes, she's still alive. And <laughs> Annette Benning and um, various other people. It's really very, it's based on a true story in Washington, D.C., and it's very, it's, you know, not brilliant, but it's uh, very kind of amusing and uh, good performances. There mm. you go. That's my recommendation. Oh, that's on the poster. Not brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, it is would in my, a way. Would, would, my mother, would my mother like it? Would my mother like it? Yes, she would. Would she? She would. Yeah, okay. I believe so. Okay, so, I'm laying the blame. There with you? I'm laying the blame <laughs> firmly at your feet. When... Well, the good thing is you can always turn it off if it's not a cup of tea. Yeah, well, the, when the lip is curled, I'll go, well, Maria said you'd like it. I, I can't apologise enough. Um, thank you very much. You gather some letters. Virgin Radio. Oh, exciting. Our first letter. First letter of the Sunday. Here we go. Dear Graham and Maria, we have a family holiday booked for Corfu this August and this includes my partner and our two girls who are 14 and 19. The problem is our 19-year-old daughter has recently announced that unless her new boyfriend of less than six months can be added to the booking, she won't come on the holiday or that if she does come, she'll be miserable for the whole two weeks, potentially ruining it for everyone. This has presented us with a real dilemma. Do we stand firm and say no, as this is probably the last holiday we will all have together? She's 19 and we accept that she will want to go off and do her own thing. And it is only two weeks. If they can't cope without each other for that long, maybe it's a sign it's not meant to be. Or do we relent and have the hassle of sorting out an extra flight, checking the accommodation, can accept another person, upgrading the hire car, etc, etc, just to accommodate her demands? I feel like we're being manipulated and don't know what to do. Please help. That is from Louise in Hampshire. Oh, Louise in Hampshire, you are being manipulated. And, you know, it's one of those things that teenagers can do. The thing is, she has only just recently said that this boyfriend has to come and presumably this holiday has been booked for some time. You sound like you've, you know, get things all in order ahead of the game, Louise. It really depends, Louise, on the sort of relationship you have had with your daughter 
I mean, you've had 19 years of parenting. So you know the sort of way that you've brought her up. Will she do what you say? Is this a test? Is it going to cause a family rift that will last forever? Only you know that, Louise, in Hampshire and, you, and your partner. So personally, uh, I'm going to say no. Do not give in to her demands mm -hmm. because she is really blackmailing you with, um, you know, I'll be miserable for two weeks and I'll potentially ruin it for everyone. Kids these days, they can FaceTime each other. They can Snapchat. They can do all of the things. It's not like she will be out of contact with him for two weeks. And as you say, this is the last family holiday where it's just the four of you. So I would say no. And if she doesn't want to come, Louise, in Hampshire, then you have to suck that up. She'll be, you know, missing out on her family, you, your partner, her sister, for two weeks and a lovely free, let's be honest with this, free holiday for her. Two weeks is not that long. You know, you have to decide how she's going to... You will. You're the only one, Louise, who will know how she will react if you say no. But I'm going... Oh, putting my neck out, I'm going with the no. What do you think, Graham? Oh, big no. I mean, but also, I have so many questions. What sort of freakish weirdo is this girl going out with? What boy wants to go on a holiday with his girlfriend's 14-year-old sister and her parents? I mean, it sounds hell. Absolute hell. I mean, if you're in the family, it's probably not great. But if you're a boyfriend, why on earth would you want to do that? So, uh, big red flags there, I would say, if he's willing to go on this holiday. Um, and also, okay... One, when, if she go, if she goes, if she goes without the boyfriend, she will mope for about two days, maybe, and then yeah. she'll forget about it, and she won't even bother FaceTiming him, and she'll be back, and da da da. I, I certainly he can't come because if he comes, you won't be having a family holiday because she and the nineteen-year-old, he and the one nineteen-year-old, will just be off doing their own things, and they'll be out late, and it'll just wreck the whole thing if he comes. So. Definitely no to that. And I think just, you can, I think, say to your daughter, look, this is our last family holiday. This is it. This is the last one. We get that. You have your own life now. And that's great. We're happy. We, we hoped we could have one last family holiday together. But if you don't want to come, well, you know, we think in the fullness of time, you might regret that. When you look back at this time in your life, you might think, I should have done that. But it's totally up to you. Don't force her to come, but you know, explain it as fully as you can and then it's up to her. And you know what? You probably go on your holiday, leave her behind, he'll dump her and she'll just be sobbing in the kitchen. And there you go. <laughs> Them's the bricks. Yeah, but Louise doesn't want to worry about that either. That's the thing. Will you worry about if you leave her behind? She's you know, 19. What is she get up to? She's 19. Is she going to have a party? I know, but 19s can still be stupid, can't they? They can still be Clearly. crazy and <laughs> do nutty things. I mean, if she comes, you're right, Graeme. I think she'll mope for a day or two and then she'll be, you know, putting on her latest bikini, slathering on the suntan lotion and flirting with the waiters, you know, of which there are many in Corfu, I would imagine, all of whom very <laughs> handsome and gorgeous. Um, so it's a test. She's testing you, and I think you have to be firm on this. I really do. Yeah, I don't know no what the listeners will say. Well, I'm sure, look, I just think she's 19. So I think you just, you can't make her come, but I think you just put, you, you just lay out the case and go, look, this is, this is why we'd like you to come. Uh, this is why we don't want him to come. And uh, there you go. Uh, now you make a decision. Uh, take care of yourself. Bye. And 
you know, whatever she wants to do, she does. And if you end up going on holiday without her, how lovely. It'll just be you and the 14-year-old and your lovely time in Corfu. And I bet you she'll have a miserable time uh, back in the UK It kind of and just be on the phone kind of going, oh, can I fly out? And stand firm, Louise, say no, no, <laughs> she cannot. Yeah, well, no, she, you know that's going to happen. They'll be kind of like, oh, actually, I'm sorry I didn't come now. It looks really fun. Uh, it's a nicer hotel than I thought it was going to be. Uh, so, uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't. The responses part one. Uh, Richard in Wandsworth says, for Louise, call her bluff and say that grandma's heard she doesn't want to go anymore, so is looking forward to taking her place. Yeah, what if she then calls that bluff and you have to end up bringing your mother? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Lucy in Sussex actually had that happen to her. Uh, I've been in a similar situation, but with my mother-in-law, I didn't want her to come at all. All right, Lucy in Sussex. I hope this is a pretend name anyway. Uh, uh, But my husband was adamant that she did come. So we compromised by letting her come for five days of the trip. That worked well. But I'd recommend that he comes out at the end of the holiday so she's got something to look forward to and you'll get the best of her at the start of it. Oh, now, see, Lucy, I thought you were saying bring the daughter out for half the trip and then she can spend the rest of the time with her boyfriend back in London. I I wouldn't bring him at all. I I think it's a bad idea. Um, And also with your mother-in-law, yeah, you have to bring her at the end because you couldn't kind of like halfway through the holiday. Okay, (laughs) you've had enough fun. Bye. Take it to the airport. Uh, thank you, Lucy in Sussex. And Andy from Epic says, advice for Louise. Go through the motions of checking if the boyfriend can be added. If you find that there are no flights or accommodation available in truth, or you make it up, problem sorted. He can't come, and you did all you could to accommodate him. Clever. That is good, Andy. The old computer says no uh, excuse. That's why he can't come. Uh, I, I don't... Ooh. I just think he, whatever happens, that boyfriend should not go on that holiday. And why would he want to? It's crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> okay, a thorny one for problem two on a Sunday. Dear Graham and Maria, I'm in my late 40s now, married with three children who, are, who have almost all but left home. I haven't been in a marital relationship with my husband or shared a bedroom with him for several years now. We have kept our separation private from friends and family so nobody else knows. But I have made myself happy enough living all together during these years as I agreed with my husband that it would be right for the children and honestly my life revolves around caring for them anyway. My question is, do I stay here in our lovely home and continue to be the nest for our young adult children and future grandchildren, or do I break it all up to start life again alone? Is it worth it? With the cost of living, I could only afford a space my children couldn't call home. And I find the thought mostly scary, although a bit exciting. Could I stay here as flatmates but tell the children we are separated? Any advice from people who have been through this would be very much appreciated. And that is from Verity in Cumbria. Lovely name, Verity. This is tough. But as you say, Verity, your children, your three children who you you have really cared for and put them first, they've almost all but left home. So, you know, you've done your bit now, Verity. And do you want to sacrifice any more of your life or more of your happiness because you've been living... In this, and I understand why you've done it with your partner to keep the kids stable, etc., and you know, keep them in a, a sort of a family home. So, 
I think what you need to do, you clearly have an okay relationship with your partner because you've lived like this for several years and it's been all right. So I think you need to sit down with him and say, look, they're almost all gone now. What shall we do? Because presumably, Verity, he wants to have a life too. You know, you're in your late 40s. There's a lot of life ahead of you. And for him, do you want another relationship? I think the idea of living as flatmates is kind of... It sounds all right on paper, but it's going to be a lot harder, you know, if you start bringing people home, etc. And I, I get what you mean. It's the cost of living. You know, if you sell the house, then you've both got to pay, buy a place. So it's a thorny um, problem. Uh, only you know. And it's something that I do feel you have to discuss with your partner because he is part of this. I was going to say it's not a mess. It's actually you've done very well. But it's part of this for how you move forward, how you go on now. A family home is where you are. It doesn't really matter if it's small. You know, the kids want to come back and see you or their dad. It doesn't matter about the trinkets and surrounding furniture. It's really about going home to see mum. If they're all... And you've done amazingly to stay in this marital relationship that is has been hard, no shared bedroom, no relationship. Uh, so just chat with him because I think the way forward is that you go your separate ways however difficult that might be it's just you want a new beginning and it's going to be very hard to do that for both of you if you're in the same family home Graham I mean I just think late 40s and I know this I remember when I hit 50 you did sort of feel like oh well that's kind of it now and the rest is just kind of coasting it's coasting yeah. till the end now how do you feel now that you're 75 well you see now i feel a bit energized now i feel like <laughs> there's more life to live and you know that exactly was, and it was someone somebody when, when i turned 50 you know I, I think i read something or heard an interview with someone and they were talking about that idea of turning 50 and kind of going well actually you've got decades left so don't give up don't stop don't do that and i just feel for verity you know i she has this vision of oh the nest for these family like there may not be any grandkids you know you can't plan for your children you come they might all move to australia you know and then you'll be sat there thinking well, why did i do this why did i sacrifice my whole life for you know children that don't even exist yet so i just think no one can tell you what to do in this situation, Verity. Nobody can tell you what the right decision is because it it is absolutely up to you and what you've got the the kind of the, the stomach for in in a way. But Maria's right. It, it's also down to oh hello, is that Rafi? Um, but it's also down to uh, the, your husband because you're right. Like he can't want to sit in this house with a flatmate. You know, I'm guessing he'd like to have a life too. And it's great that you've kept it amicable this far. And I do think, you know, in terms of being amicable, that in the future, this family, you, your husband and these kids and maybe these mythical grandchildren can all come together because it's not like you've fallen out. It's like there's not terrible bad blood. You've managed it thus far. So I, th I think the future could be actually pretty good. But I, I, I worry that Verity is is going to look back at this time in, in sort of 10, 15 years and go, oh, what a, what was I thinking? Um, yeah. be because, you know, a lot happens. A lot happens. I mean, she does say, Graham, that Verity does say that she finds it scary 
although a bit exciting. Well, I think you need yeah. to concentrate on the exciting bit, Verity, and think I've done, you know, the best job I could with my children. They're all fleeing the nest. Yes, the marriage didn't work out, but what's for the future? And there is life after 40, late 40s, and there's a, more relationships and there's a whole other world. So really concentrate on the exciting bit. And I think do talk to your partner. What does he feel about all this? What do you think, Graham? Yeah, I agree. He can't... He, I mean, what, what does he imagine the future to be like? And if he thinks this is... And it, he, I mean, what? what? He can't think, oh, yeah, let's do this for another 25 years. It just... It, that's crazy. So something, something's going to give... I, I hope something gives for you, Faraday, because, like I say, you are... However you feel... You are young. You've got a lot more living to do. So do it. Now, responses part two. Rage and Starbridge says, Verity, if this is one of your children, what advice would you give them? Surely you would want them to follow their heart and find a new adventure. You, finding the courage to refind yourself, gives them permission to live their life in the same way. Fortune favors the brave. Mucho love. And I say that's from Rage in Starbridge. Margaret says, uh, I left my husband after 25 years and set up a new home. It was very scary. But after a couple of years, I met the most wonderful man, got married at 52, and we spent many happy years together. Be brave. There is a wonderful world out there. Be happy. Linda says, Graham, I left my husband after 20 odd years when I was in my late 40s with two teenagers. It was the hardest decision I made, as I felt it was selfish. In the end, it wasn't. I'm a better mom to my children now, as they see me as the happiest I've ever been in forever. It was the best thing I ever did, and now I'm in a relationship with the most wonderful man after meeting him on a dating website at 50. It's scary, Verity, but so worth it. My children tell me now they're glad I did it, as they knew things weren't right in the marriage. Surround yourself with an amazing support network, and you'll get through it a day at a time. And Mag says, get your own life back. I did it at 51 after staying in a relationship the same. I wish I'd done it earlier. I did 33 years and should not have. Life is for living and I love it. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Right, time to meet my first guest today. In 2006, there was a new dragon. And since then, she has been the voice of common sense and really a little bit of warmth in our lives as well. She now has written a new book for children called Why Money Matters. It's Deborah Meaton. Good morning, Deborah. Good morning. How are you? Very mellow. That's a very mellow tune to come into. Yeah, well, you know, that's us. It's Sunday morning vibes, Deborah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what would that be? Would it be the waltz? Would it be uh, something? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, right. This book, Why Money Matters. Uh, what sort of age range is it aimed at? Well, it's for six to nine year olds because um, I was amazed to discover that we actually form our money habits by the age of six. Really? Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, that it doesn't mean you know everything about money, but it just means you're going to be a spender or a saver or a saver spender. So, um, so I thought, you know what, this is this is pretty important to uh, to get in there early. And actually, what's interesting about it is it's not a talking down to kids at all. I mean, it's everything. It's it's the history of money. It's how banks work. It's how you know taxation works. It's all in there, isn't it? Well, yeah. I, I actually, I you know, I loved writing it, so I wrote it for an adult. Um, I don't even have children, Graham. I, you know, I was a bit worried. How do I, you know, am I getting the voice right? But I wrote it as an adult and then I simplified it. I just went back. And what I learned 
is that in life we do complicate stuff. You know, once I sort of took all the legs off, I thought, oh, actually, it's really much simpler than that. So actually, I learned a lot writing it. And here's the thing. I think that's really interesting, that idea of that we form our relationship with money at six. Is that just us mimicking our parents' relationship with money? Or are we, do we do, we do the opposite of our parents? No, you are bang on. That's exactly, actually, the biggest influence that, um, that, it, that children of that age pick up is definitely from their parents. Um, so, so I'm rather hoping that when the parents read the book to the children, <laughs> they start forming their own money habits. Uh, because it is that weird thing. And also because I think m- not just our relationship, but money's changed. I mean, you know, my parents grew up in a time when if you couldn't afford it, that was it. You didn't have it. Whereas I grew up at a time where credit cards were being introduced and, you know, I didn't understand credit. I got myself into a bit of a bit of hot water along the way. So uh, how has money changed now for young people, do you think? Well, so so I think that's the biggest issue. I mean, it's, it's much easier to teach children the value of money when they can see it. You know, I've got this much money, I've spent it, I've got no more money. But of course, it's all invisible now. It's not even on credit cards. You know, it's on their phones. Yeah. So, so I think the book talks about money in terms of numbers, you know, so so the more you have, the more the numbers go up in your account and the, the more you spend, the more they go down. So um, so it's trying to get that concept of, you know, just realize, although it's hidden money, it's no different to the coins that you have in your pocket, because honestly, in their lifetime, they're probably, you know, there probably aren't going to be coins. So we've got to get we've got to teach them now the value of um, of, of what I call hidden money. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I always kind of think nobody wants a little Jacob Rees-Mogg sat on their sofa, but equally you don't want you don't want someone who's totally clueless. How do you kind of get that balance right, do you think, Deborah? Yeah, thank you for ruining my Sunday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen um, that clip of him? Have you seen the clip of Jacob Rees-Mogg oh, as a kid? Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Do you know what I think is that children worry more about what they're not talked to about than they do about because they hear snippets in the house. So they will worry if they hear things like cost of living crisis, recession. They don't know what it means. It will worry them. So I think it's a really good idea to be very open about it and explain what it means, not just, you know, we're short of money or it's very difficult or you can't have that. Explain why and explain the context in it, Um, because I say I think in the absence of an explanation, they make up their own version, and their own version is usually worse than the reality. Because sometimes, you know, on Dragon's Den, when people bring their kids, <laughs> and sometimes they're charming, <laughs> but sometimes you think, oh, let them be a child. <laughs> Don't put them in a suit and make them do this. Where, where, do, you, where do you sit or stand on, uh, on the children stepping out of the lift? Well, I think it's a very good idea to bring a, a, a child or a dog <laughs> a cat or a rabbit so I think <laughs> at that point the dragon's just chucking money at you so I think it's an excellent ploy um do you know some children and I was one of them they actually do enjoy business and it's not just business you know it, it was almost play for me it was the thing that I wanted to play at so I you know it isn't an instant oh you know let them be a child I you know I think well as long as they're enjoying this and they're learning this um then I think it, you know it's a great thing you can't learn the value of money for me and the why I wrote the book is money can do amazing things. Money can build you the best life. Money, money can also do awful things. You know, so so it's really important that people understand it's a tool for good. And that's not just good for you. You know, it can change the planet. It can, 
help other people um, if you use it well. But on the contrary, if you use it badly, then it can spoil an awful lot of things. And I think that's really, really important. And when I see those young people step through the lift talking about their business, I hope that they're on a journey to build a good life for themselves. Uh, Deborah, you were talking about how money can make the world a better place. Is it true the other dragons call you swampy? <laughs> well, they did. I think they've come round, I'm very pleased to say. But honestly, my first... So I've always worried about the environment. And, you know, I was always the one who was going to ask the questions about what impact it's going to have. And at the beginning, you know, Theo used to sit there going, oh, there she goes again, swampy. Oh, no, about that stuff. Um, but of course, the world now is, you know, they, we all understand that Climate change isn't really about the future; it's about now. So, uh, so I, you know, I do quietly sit there and chuckle now. But they've stopped. They don't call me swampy anymore. But you do, like you, you really do it. Like you, have you? Are you still vegan now? I am indeed. Well, plant based, um, plant based because I, you know, I have got some. I'm sitting on a leather chair actually, although I did buy it before I was plant based. But yeah, I'm plant based. Um, yeah, and I listen. I don't think I would have a right to uh, go on about the planet if I didn't change my life in some way to make it better. So, um, yeah, I yeah. am. Yeah. And, and actually, what's interesting is, I think all the, you know, you're talking about uh, kids worrying. I think, you know, when I was a child, it was all about, you know, uh, the nuclear bomb. That was the thing that kept you awake at night. But now it must be, for little kids, it must be climate change. Well, absolutely. And, and, and the thing about climate change is it feels, you know what I was saying before about that hearing words and not really knowing what it means, filling yeah. in you know, climate change just feels so enormous for children, you know. So I think they must look at us adults and think, what are you doing? Or more to the point, what are you not doing? And do you do, with this book, are you going to do uh, like events with schools or have you just written the book and gone, oh, there you go, have it, kids? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I am. Um, listen, I am. I'm not being funny, Graham. I haven't done it for the money. <laughs> I, I, I really feel passionate about this. You know, I think... As I said before, money can be a real, real, real driver of good things. Um, so I think it's so important. I just want to get into the, the hands of as many children as possible. So, yes, we've got school events on. You know, I'm going to do some book fairs. Um, we already launched it with with uh, three schools in, in Clapham. Um, and obviously, you know, we're going to we're going to do as, as much as we can to get it out there because um, I just feel there's a gap, and and you know the biggest res biggest reception we've had is from teachers because believe it or not, learning about money is not on the school curriculum, which I think is absolutely staggering. You know, so many yeah. teachers are frustrated by that. You know, they they oh this is the book we needed. So I'm I, you know we're working very hard to get it into their hands. And when you talk to children, like what are their big things about money? What are what are the things that they want to know about money? Well, I think one of the biggest things I hear, and then when I unpick it, it worries me, is, you know, I want to be rich. And I always say, actually, you know, being wealthy is something that is an outcome of something that you do. It's not a goal in itself. Um, so so that's what I try to unpick with children. You know, what, what does that actually mean? What kind of life do you want? You know, do you want quite a simple life? Do you want to travel a lot? So so and just see money as a tool. You know, it is just the tool that helps you get all of those things. It's not an end result in itself. It is no fun going and visiting your money in a bank. It is much more fun going out and traveling and meeting people and helping people and doing projects and doing whatever you care about. So so I think that's that's my you know, that's the thing that kind of sparked it. It's it's realizing that children and actually Dragon's Den kind of feeds into that in a way. You know, they just want to be rich. And I'm yeah. like, oh, oh, no, you don't. You want a good life. That's what you want. 
Well, it's so interesting you say that because Billy Crystal, the great Billy Crystal, he is a, a thing where he says, people say to him, oh, I want to be rich and famous. And he goes, try being rich first. Well, you did. I mean, you were rich first and then you got famous. Are you sorry you did the famous bit? No, not at all. I uh, No, I love it. I uh, so, so I don't like fame per se. Um, so, I, you know, I don't crave to be on TV. And I, But I do love... I love the voice that it's given me. I, you know, I, the, I'm able to use my platform and that is a fantastic thing. And, and when I think, sometimes I turn down invitations, I think 20 years ago, I would have given my hind teeth to go to that. You know, so I, I'm never, I'm very respectful of where I am now and, and having that fame and what it has brought me. Occasionally, when I'm wearing my joppers, by the way, which I'm wearing now, but I'm not sure. <laughs> But when I'm wearing my joppers and I go down the shop and I look an absolute, I probably smell ever so slightly of horse poo. I know. And then I think maybe I don't want people to come up and ask me for my autograph. <laughs> but and, oh. it's a good thing. And tell me this, you know, in terms of, you know, I want to be rich. I Because, you know, you're right. Money is a lovely thing. We can't pretend it's not. But equally, I look at those people, you know, those billionaires and the, the you know, the Zuckerbergs, but, but kind of below that. What drives those people? The thing where you actually have more than you could ever spend in your entire lifetime, more than, you know, you can give to your children, all of that. What's that about? Do you understand it as an entrepreneur? Um, I, I kind of do, um, because once you get on that treadmill, it's very hard to get off because it starts becoming the thing that defines you. Um, so I kind of understand that. Me, the reason I'm 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 not a billionaire, but the reason I do it is I love what I'm doing. You know, it's it's as simple as that. Um, and I love creativity. I love helping um, entrepreneurs. Um, what I do sometimes think is that they're searching for something because when you have so much money, um, that you can buy anything. You're kind of taken away that moment of, of the thing that we all enjoy, which is, oh, I want, I really want that and I can't quite have it and I need to save up for it. And isn't that thing even lovelier when you've had to save up for it? You know, isn't that, isn't that even more precious? So I think when you can buy everything and do everything you want, they kind of are searching and, and, and maybe that's through more businesses and I'll do another deal and I'll do, and some people love a deal. You know, they just like I do. I like I like doing a deal. So I don't know. So sometimes I worry that those people are looking for something that they haven't found because if they read my book when they were six to nine, <laughs> they would have realised they should have worked out what they wanted in life first. And, then get <laughs> and she brought it back, ladies and gentlemen. Yay! <laughs> back on the shelves. <laughs> Why money matters. Why money matters. It's part of the Little Expert series. And it's by Deborah Meaden. It's out in hardback now. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for sharing some of your Sunday with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much no, indeed. Thank you for inviting me. And huge apologies for two weeks ago. You're a class act. We got the flowers. Thank you so much. That was so kind <laughs> of you. No, I, I, on the air, I was going, well, whoever's fault it is, I know it's not Deborah Meaden's. And then it was your fault. So <laughs> Honestly, Graham, I, I, I can't let anybody else take my blame. <laughs> Uh, anyway, thanks for making the time today. Lovely to talk Thank to you. you. Take care now. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Soon, Lisa Jewell will be telling me all about her latest psychological thriller, None of This is True. But before we get to that, on the road we go. Oh, hello there. How are you? I am very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. How are uh, Quentin and Sue? 
Oh, I think we've still got some happy faces. <laughs> still reeling from We're having our a ball. picnic loaf. <laughs> I love, they're, they're like, and that woman's still here. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's find out what you're making today. What, what, are you, what are you making for us? So something sweet to take on your picnic today. These are some blueberry and lemon thyme friands, which are lovely little almond cakes. Very popular in Australia and New Zealand, but not so common out here, but really, really nice. Okay. And uh, is there any chance of a drink? We thought you can't go off on your picnic without... Can you hear the the ice? You can hear the ice rolling. So we've gone for a lovely little classic mojito um, and we're using the Fever Tree mixers. They're a new product that Fever Tree have made where they have everything you need. So when you go on your picnic, all you need to take is a little thing of your rum. If you want to take ice, take that in a little flask and then you mix it all together um, on your picnic rug. Nice and simple. So who'd have thought you could take a cocktail on a picnic? But now you can. So anyway, it's all, so basically, there's a mojito in a bottle and then you just chuck it into the thing. Is that it? Absolutely. So you add your rum, um, so take your rum with you, but then, yeah, it's got spring, it's got the water, like the carbonated, the fizz, it's got lime in there, it's got mint, it's really nice. They've also got a margarita one and an espresso martini one, so you can take all three. Wow. Uh, I'm not pretending that's a recipe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not pretending that's a recipe either. <laughs> all right, but well, there is a recipe for a blueberry and lemon time what are you saying it frines free ants free ants i believe Free all the complicated things this weekend haven't we? all the languages what? and they're just they're just popular in new zealand and australia they're very similar to a french um, financier so similar to those little almond cakes they are they look a little bit like muffins but they've got the texture of something a bit more rich and dense they've got loads of ground almonds in there so they're okay. really lovely and moist uh, sue you're the baker have you ever heard of these before <laughs> never Never, okay. but one of my one of my friends did wonder whether that's what um, Martha might be doing with the blueberries that have been delivered to us. Yes, they were playing. Guess guess the ingredients. <laughs> guess what I was going to make because the ingredients arrived before I did. So they were looking at them, thinking, "What can it be?" But uh, one of Sue's friends, obviously an avid reader of the Waitress my magazine, friend, my friend <laughs> Helen guessed. Mm. Um, honestly, there's a, there's a game show in that, isn't there? Just like a lot of ingredients, <laughs> show. you have to decide what's going to be made. How? What did you make? What, I'll go to Sue first because she is the baker. What did you think of the blueberry and lemon thyme friands? They are absolutely beautiful. Very, very pretty. Again, um, lovely and light, lovely flavour. Um, yes, absolutely delicious. Is it more like a biscuit or a bun? Where Where are you placing it in the? No, scene? it's it's more like a sort of. I don't know, like a cross between a bakewell tart and a muffin, I'm thinking. Okay. Uh, Quentin, are you keen? I love it. Uh, The blueberries are dipped down. You've got the lovely buttery taste, the ground almonds. It's lovely. Okay. Uh, I think the cocktails have been consumed. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They have. (laughs) Very keen. This is the best thing I've ever eaten. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, Martha, uh, give us the recipe, please. So I actually feel a bit bad I'm not doing anything chocolatey considering we're in... Near, so near to Cadbury's, but something lovely and summery. No chocolate today, but lots of almonds. So first we're taking butter, get that melted down, and then the basis of a friand is egg whites. So there's no creaming butter and sugar involved. They're really simple and quick to make. So we're taking five egg whites. You just want to foam them a tiny bit. They don't need to be whisked. They just need to be broken up slightly. Then they are going into a bowl with some plain flour, some icing sugar, ground almonds, and then the zest of a lemon. And we're also chucking in some lemon thyme, which is a lovely herb, 
which is very similar to thyme, but it has a slightly citrusy flavour, which complements the lemon we've got going in there. So we're going to mix that all together, add in your butter. It creates this lovely thick butter, which we're then going to divide between a tin, um, just a regular muffin tin. Then sprinkle over some blueberries into the oven it goes for about 25 minutes. And then when they come out, leave them to cool in the tin for 10 minutes and then drizzle them with a little bit of lemon icing and some flaked almonds and a few more blueberries and... You're good to go. They're very easy, like making muffins, but you don't even need the cases. Okay. And again, I'm always interested, like, how, how, how storable are these? Or can you freeze them? Or what can you do? They're very storable, um, which is why they're particularly good for picnics, because they muffins are supposed to be really light, but freehands are supposed to be a little bit more dense. And as uh, Sue was saying, a bit more like a Bakewell tart, like that lovely frangipan almond moist filling. So they are a little bit more robust. They'll survive. They'll hold up to your rucksack <laughs> okay. and they can be stored in a, in a cake tin for a couple of days or you can chuck them in the freezer and keep them for as long as you please. And I would urge people to be careful with the lemon thyme because it's quite potent lemon thyme, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. It's got about a tablespoon of chopped lemon thyme. Then I always like to put a little bit on top as well just to remind everybody that it's supposed to be in there. <laughs> and it's not just a, la- a random fleck of green they've encountered in the middle of their sweet treat. <laughs> Marvellous. And meanwhile, you've opened up some bottles and mixed them together. Um, <laughs> I have done that. It's nice that it's achievable. <laughs> that, that is very achievable, I think. <laughs> oh no, how do I make ice? Uh, <laughs> Good luck. Uh, Quentin and Sue, thank you so much for uh, allowing us into your home. It's been a real pleasure to spend some time with the both of you. Well, thank you too. It's been absolute ball. It's been great fun. So it has been enormous to, fun. To so Arthur thank you. And, and, and the crew. It's been fun. Thank you Excellent. very much. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Right now, it is time to meet my second guest today. Since 1999, she has been a constant presence on the Sunday Times bestselling list, and indeed the New York Times as well. The girls, then she was gone, the family upstairs. Her latest is called None of This is True, and she is called Lisa Jewell. Good afternoon, Lisa. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, so none of this is true. This is, uh, it's all based around uh, a podcast, which seems quite zeitgeisty, uh, the idea of a, a, a kind of thriller based around podcasts. Yeah, I think there are a lot of them around at the moment. And actually, when I started this book, um, my podcaster was going to be a novelist, actually. Um, and then I felt that was a bit too close to home for my liking. <laughs> and so I decided she needed another sort of job. And I thought, how about she could be a podcaster? So actually, yeah, it might feel zeitgeisty, but it just came from a sort of place of like, I need to make a different decision about this book. That will do. <laughs> Right. So your podcaster is called uh, Alex Summers and then she meets Josie Fair. Uh, What do you want to tell us about either of those women? Okay. so Alex Summers is exactly what you'd imagine a North London based podcaster to be. She's very glamorous. She lives in this Instagrammable house. She's got these two beautiful little children um, and a handsome husband who provides very well for her. And on the night of her 45th birthday, she goes to her local twinkly gastro pub in Queen's Park and crosses paths with this woman, as you say, called Josie Fair. And now Josie Fair is also celebrating her 45th birthday, but she's a very different proposition to Alex. She's quite mousy. She's there in the pub on her own with her husband, who is considerably older than her. She had her children when she was very young. They've left their, their she has an empty nest um, and she fixates on Alex. She sees her celebrating her birthday with all her friends, um, discovers that they're birthday twins and then finds a way to approach Alex on the street a few days later to suggest that she herself might make a really good subject 
for a podcast because her life has been very interesting. She has some stories to tell and she's about to change her life completely. Um, Alex is initially quite put off by this approach, thinks this woman's a bit creepy and a bit weird, but also can't resist the, the temptation of finding out what this woman's story might be. So they start making this podcast and very quickly. In fact, the reader becomes aware more quickly than Alex, in fact, of how peculiar um, Josie actually is. And so the reader from quite early on in the book is thinking, don't let her into your house. <laughs> <laughs> She's a weirdo. But Alex, it takes a while for Alex to realise. Um, actually, it was interesting though, because it's got this framing device of not just the podcast, but then a Netflix series based on the podcast. So yeah. the, as you say, the reader, we know... Uh, kind of in not entirely how the book ends but we know how yeah. a certain version of it ends uh were you always going to do that were you always going to tease the reader about where we were going to end well no precisely not that in fact because i i, I write without a plan and i very rarely really understand what the book i'm writing is about until i'm about halfway through and about halfway through writing this book, I thought, well, I've spent an awful lot of time planting all these really tiny little seeds of discomfort, unsettling little details about Josie's behaviour and, and alluding to her strange backstory. I could be reading the, the losing losing my readers here at this point because everything's moving very slowly. So I then retroactively went back and inserted all these um, clips, these clips from a pretend Netflix documentary that was made two years after the events of the recording of the podcast. So then the reader knows that even though everything's moving at quite a slow pace in the in the front story of the book, they know that really shocking things are going to be happening. So that, that lends all these tiny little moments in the front story of the book, this sort of added weight, this added sense of creepy forebodingness. Um, so, yeah, so I put those in about halfway through. And that's really, I think, what gives the book its electricity. Wow, because I know because I read at the end you talk about how quickly this book you you wrote it. So it's amazing yeah. that so this story wasn't fully formed when you sat down and sort of like splurged it out onto the page. No, I just had these. In fact, the the, the original character who I, who who inspired the book was Josie's much much older husband Walter. He was a guy I saw through a window when I was walking the dog one afternoon, and I thought he looks interesting. He looks like he's got some dark stories to tell. Um, so yeah, so all I had was Walter and then I had to introduce these two characters in a pub. And really from the night that I introduced these two characters in the pub in the first chapter, I didn't know what was going to happen between them. Um, so every day, every day was a surprise. I have to say when I came to my laptop and saw what Josie was going to do next, um, and how this story was going to develop. And that, I mean, it, it seems to me that requires a level of kind of self-belief and confidence yeah. to sit down and do that. Has that come, uh, you know, over the last 23 years or did you kind of always yeah. have that when you, you no, were I, writing books? I definitely didn't always have that. I spent the first half of my career second guessing myself, overthinking everything, thinking I was doing everything wrong, um, panicking, catastrophizing and uh, yeah, being out of control. Um, but then, yeah, about halfway through my career, I just owned it. I just thought, no, this is how I write. And I've clearly got good instincts because even if I write in a sense of what feels like chaos, the book at the end of the, the, the end result is always readable and good and readers enjoy it. So now I, I own my, my, my crazy, ridiculous process. Um, and yeah, as you say, that is that comes out of trust in my instincts and <laughs> self-confidence. Um, doesn't mean I can't still balls it up. I do balls it up on a regular basis. Oh, good! I'm so glad. <laughs> no, because I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to tempt fate. But has it ever gone kind of so wrong that you've got to go? Oh, actually, you know, uh, put, put this car in reverse, Lisa. Let's let's yes. go. 
It has. And in fact, the book that I wrote after None of This is True, which is currently um, being edited for its third rewrite, and I'm not sure I'm ever going to get it to a place where I'm happy with it. Um, whereas this, None of This is True, just kind of landed on the page in the right place. Um, and I didn't really have to work that hard to, to fix it at the, in the editing process. So every book is different. And yeah, there's no sort of straight trajectory from being a bad writer to being a good writer. Well, none, none of this is true is brilliantly dark and twisty. And really, like th there are proper kind of proper twists where you kind of like, oh, no one could have seen this coming. So it's yeah. well done. It's terrific. And Lisa, you've had such success over the last 20 odd years. But interestingly, you your books kind of have changed over that time. You started in a much lighter place. When did you decide to change? Was that just you following your instincts or was it a kind of a, a commercial decision? How did it happen? Uh, it was not a commercial decision at all. And in fact, when I sat down in 1996 to start writing my first novel, um, it, 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 I started writing a psychological thriller. And I just didn't feel it. It wasn't what was in my heart and in my soul. It wasn't where I was at at that point. Uh, and I've been that, and then I started writing this lovely, romantic, quirky, romantic comedy um, about flat shares and what have you in Battersea, and it was the 90s. And uh, so that was a really huge hit. That was Ralph's Party, and thus I became known as a writer of, of like, you know, quirky, romantic comedies. Um, they just gradually, I don't know, I just got older and my life changed, and I just started letting many more of those dark themes I'd always been so interested in. I started letting more and more of them into the book. And then at one point, I just wrote a book that didn't have a romantic relationship at its heart. And nobody shouted at me or told me off or said that was a really bad thing to do. So that sort of emboldened me <laughs> a little bit. And then I started writing these sort of family dramas and mysteries. And then halfway through writing one of them, I realized I was bored. And I thought, if I'm bored, the reader's going to be bored. So I went back and wrote a prologue in which one of the characters gets thrown under the wheels of a night bus on Karen Road. <laughs> And that was it. There was kind of no turning back from that. And I made that point, that, that decision at the halfway point of writing the book. Once you've killed someone, you're there, you've crossed over. Um, and again, nobody said you shouldn't have done that. We don't want you to kill off your characters. Um, and people liked it. So, yeah, it's just been a sort of gradual process of seeing what I could get away with, seeing if people liked it and then doing it a little bit more and a little bit more. And I think, yeah, with this one, I've got... I've, Fully, fully gone dark. <laughs> what I like is on when you look on Amazon and you look at all the covers of your books, how the covers yeah. have changed over the years. Yes, all those pastel cartoon <laughs> covers from, from the noughties. Yes, they look like children's books, yes. <laughs> and now it's oily puddles. <laughs> <laughs> and now, very dark, very, very dark. Um, yeah. I, I, very quickly, I just want to go back to the beginning of your career. And the I don't know if it's true, but the power of friendship. You kind of owe your, your writing career to, to a friend. I do. My friend Yasmin Boland, who's now a famous astrologist, actually, but at that time was a journalist. Um, and I had to, I'd only known her for a few months. She was my boyfriend's friend, who's now my husband. Um, and she was a journalist, so she's used to people saying, oh, I'd really like to write a novel. I'd really like to write a novel. And so when she when I told her I'd really write, like to write a novel and then gave her 100 reasons why I couldn't write a novel, she got quite exasperated and just said, look, just write the novel. In fact, just write three chapters of the novel. And if you do that, I will take you out for dinner to your favourite restaurant. And we actually shook hands. We were drunk at the time as well. It was at four o'clock in the morning. So we shook hands. I went away. I wrote the three chapters. She took me out for dinner to my favourite restaurant. And those were the first three chapters of Ralph's Party, my first novel, which I don't think I'd have done. I would not have made that leap without her pushing me into it. So, yeah, I owe her everything. 
The amazing a, Yasmin Boland. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think that's such a great story and hopefully someone listening will kind of go, oh, you know what, I could write three chapters. Because three chapters is doable. Writing a book seems impossible. But yeah. writing three chapters, that's doable. That is achievable. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and yeah, and if you can grab a reader's attention within the first three chapters enough to for, for them to want to keep reading. And that's what she did. She read the three chapters. She said, I want more, I want more. Write another chapter, write another chapter. Uh, so I was actually sending her the chapters um, yeah, as I wrote them. Um, and that is that's, that's, that's a huge it's a hugely yeah manageable way of breaking down the process from writing ninety thousand words. And look um, at you now, look at you now. Yeah. None of none of this is true. By Lisa Jewell is in Harvard on Thursday. Lovely to talk to you, uh, Lisa. Take care. And thanks you. thanks Thank for sharing you. your Sunday with us. Take care. Okay. Bye. That's us for now. Thanks so much for listening. You can catch me every Saturday and Sunday at 9.30 on Virgin Radio. And make sure you're up to date with all our goings on at Virgin Radio UK on all of our social channels. Catch you next time. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio.